Hi and welcome back. I'm Iman and this is Diaspora Disoriented, a podcast on which we attempt to understand issues facing the diaspora from a decolonial lens. So this episode is going to be different um, in its structure and its content. Um, So I don't really have any notes. It's very spontaneous and it's definitely going to be shorter and there's also no guests I'm interviewing. There's just a lot going on in Austria and in our beloved neighboring country, Germany, um, infamous for its racism that just takes on different forms every time. And a lot is happening on an EU level and globally, of course. So to start off with the larger scale, refugees are still imprisoned in the camps in Moria. Um, These are not regular refugee camps. These are not places that people can live in. It's affecting them physically, um, especially with the COVID outbreak there. And mentally, of course, this is not made for people to live in. These are actual prisons, and prisons are built to be burnt down. And I'm not sure how efficient it is, as I'm seeing a lot on the leftist scene, to limit the discourse to just what's happening in Greece right now in the camps, because this is a consequence of a long history of imperialism. This is literally just the tip of the iceberg of centuries and centuries of colonialism and current neocolonialism and Western involvement our involvement as people who are privileged to live in the EU and who are not protesting the ongoing imperialist policies and exploitation and involvement in so-called regional conflicts and triggering a lot of wars and um, benefiting from the wars by funding them and by keeping the regions unstable and um, having this kind of parasitic relationship with West Asia and North Africa. Um, so it's inevitable that people are going to end up in camps, in refugee camps in Europe, or are just going to, or that refugees are just going to flood in. And it's more than our responsibility to take them up. It's our responsibility to go tackle the origin of the refugee crisis, which all of us are complicit in or are benefiting from at least, because there is no wealth in the global north. There's no, there can be no concentrated wealth without that being taken from somebody else in the global south. And this brings me to the more local issues we're facing in Austria, but it's kind of current everywhere actually, which is the fact that we've had elections for the city council of Vienna and a lot of people have been giving away their votes um, based on how the different parties reacted, what's happening in Greece with the refugees, or at least a lot of people have been calling for others to Uh, consider how the parties have reacted but all the parties from left to of course right have failed to address um, Austria's complicity in what's happening in Greece Um, so the best you could hear is like we have the capabilities to accept um, that and that many refugees and they focus the most on children because it's easier to you know, assimilate people that have not been allegedly indoctrinated with their Eastern values and Islamic values and 
different cultures because how dare they have their own cultures because there's a danger of them establishing a whole parallel society in Austria. Um, that's, of course, the most dangerous thing that can happen to us. National socialism, forget it. doesn't have to be discussed, right? It's just the discourse is really embarrassingly immoral. Um, and I'm really disappointed, but not surprised um, by the fact that the new sort of leftist and um, predominantly migrant parties that are established in Vienna that all of them are not addressing the colonial aspect of it. And on the other hand, a lot of people are excited that the Freedom Party lost a lot of its voters during the election, like um, the majority of their voters, and they campaigned with really Islamophobic slogans this year. But the main reason they lost is because of a anti-democratic scandal. So um, there was a scandal in which the head of the party or two leading figures in the party were involved in this really embarrassing scandal in which they were signing or about to sign one non-democratic deal after another with an actress that played um, the niece of a Russian oligarch. So the reason this party lost is not because they had one of the most extremist, xenophobic, Islamophobic campaigns, but because their voters are upset that they're not following the democratic principles or whatever. Because apparently democracy in paper goes before the respect of um, religious minorities and refugees trying to protect their lives. And what's disappointing me a lot is that a lot of people put all of their hopes into those elections, people that see themselves as radical leftists. Um, I see them suddenly advocating so much for voting for a certain party because there's a few left-wing um, parties or they have, they use leftist lingo um, that are emerging and some of them focus on economic policies, others on, you know, migrant, including migrants in the party. And there's so much effort put into supporting those parties, but I haven't seen those people ever advocate for any sort of campaign, um, any real political work. And this is exactly my biggest critique at how the left in Austria treats those elections. Because a lot of those people have actually criticized the American elections and how you shouldn't put any hopes in the two-party systems and how, you know, Joe Biden is not only a horrible person, but you can't achieve anything and how it doesn't matter if he's in any way the lesser evil or not, which is, by the way, not really true. Um, we've seen him during Obama's um, presidency and, and I was complicit in so many wars and in policies inside the US but that's a topic for another time um I'm talking about people that are closer to like let's say Bernie Sanders and how he had a whole campaign where he was speaking of an actual revolution and people put their money into it their um, students specifically kind of middle class students and all their efforts and campaigned a lot for him and in the end he withdrew and endorsed Joe Biden and I've seen that kind of revolutionary wave, um, or at least the energy that could have been actual revolutionary energy that just kind of perished. And this is what happens when you rely on organizing that is close to the government, that is close to a political institution that has a troubled history, that has a problematic history with, again, colonialism. Um, we always come back to that same topic, and and the closest equivalent to 
Bernie Sanders' like political orientation would be the Social Democrats here in Central Europe. Um, and they all are complicit in the country's colonial past, be it Germany or even Austria. And Austria does have a colonial past. So if a politician or political party claims to be radically leftist, but then advocates for um, higher wages and a better financial situation for the working class in a certain region, in a city or in a country, but that country then has neocolonial relations, be it within the European Union as a whole, like as a member country, or the US, for example, um, then they're not radically leftist because then they're not opposing colonialism they're just opposing class inequality within a certain region, but at the cost of the global south. And this is a very selfish thing. And this also stems from the individualism and selfishness that we've been taught or that we've been socialized in under capitalism. And this is generally a very big issue, this individualism. So be on a whole country level kind of or community level. So better conditions in a country at the cost of another country or another continent even, or a community or personal level. So what do I mean with community level? A lot of people are abusing the idea of identity politics. So the term identity politics was coined by Barbara Smith and the Combahee River Collective in the 1970s. And they published a statement in which they tried to shed light on the conditions of the, black, uh, of the lives of black women and how they're created by interlocking systems of oppression. So how they face racism, sexism, class oppression, etc. And how those systems multiply each other. And they're not like separate systems that, um, like for example, they face racism and then completely disconnected from that, they face sexism. And then on a class level, they're also discriminated against. No, those forms of oppression intersect and kind of multiply each other and so identity politics is about people recognizing their identities so their class gender um, religion etc and how they face systems of oppression how those systems are related to each other and based on that they try to organize they come together and try to dismantle those systems accordingly and push forward their own interest and create um, a politic that is liberating them as a specific group. But also this does not mean that they don't work together with other discriminated groups, people that face some of the systems of oppression that they face, that they are subjected to, and they encourage each other. It's just that they have their own safe space, but they also work together with others, and it's not anything that is exclusive to one race, to one religious minority etc so the point is to put into effect radical change to come to the best conclusions to implement this change and not and this is what i've seen a lot lately and not to justify everything that people do from that certain background so not just because someone shares the same identities as me and carries out very reactionary politics or um or is, for example, very class reductionist in their actions or reducing or is reducing their activism to race only without addressing how um, economics play a main factor in this. The point isn't to justify that just because you share the same identity with that person. And that is a very important thing. I've seen just a very distorted understanding of that. 
and the other level of individualism that I've seen that is very counter-revolutionary and very destructive is just individualism as an individual as that's what the term actually means and people that are just very disconnected from organizing and I understand the discontent with the different scenes here with the different activist scenes here there's a lot of issues so many activist groups are problematic the so-called anti-racist and I don't know allegedly socialist groups a lot of them are problematic in certain aspects but to allow your discontent to just reject the idea of organizing instead of finding any alternative or trying to build bridges unless by the way the differences are so severe that for example you disagree on the severity of colonialism stuff so if, if you have someone that just is a complete colonial apologist then I'm not asking you to work with them that's just that's probably more counter-revolutionary but I mean to just reject the whole idea of organizing which is a sentiment I'm seeing a lot with so-called social media activists and that is counter-revolutionary and that's exactly how we've been socialized under capitalism so just think that we can't come together this is just very anti-collectivist and collectivism is how we achieve our collective goals if we're facing a system like capitalism, like colonialism, then we can't just rely on individual effort. It's not going to do anything. And here I want to quote Audre Lorde, who is a very inspirational figure to me. Um, in, in The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, a very important phrase by its own already. So in that essay she writes, Without community there is no liberation. Only the most vulnerable and temporary armistice between individual and her oppression. But community must not mean a shedding of our differences, nor the pathetic pretense that those differences do not exist. And then in her article, Learning from the 1960s, she writes her famous phrase, Unity does not mean unanimity. Unity implies the coming together of elements which are, to begin with, varied and diverse in their particular natures. Our persistence in examining the tensions within diversity encourages growth towards our common goal. So often we we'll either ignore the past or romanticize it, render the reason for unity useless or mythic. So now I'm going to address the headlines that are coming in from Germany, which I already mentioned is um, showing its racism yet again. I mentioned that in the start. So I'm just going to read them in any order. Um, and I'm translating them because all the articles I have are in German. The first one is from a um, is from the Weissensee, um Academy of Arts in Berlin, and there is basically a group of Jewish Israeli students that is basically getting boycotted for their for their art project because of their solidarity with Palestinians and their sympathy or even alleged sympathy for the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement for the rights of Palestinians, which is an anti-racist movement, which has three clear goals, um, which are ending Israel's occupation and colonization of all Arab lands and dismantling the wall. Number two, recognizing the fundamental rights of the Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel to full equality. And number three, protecting respecting and promoting the rights of Palestinian refugees to return to their homes and properties as stipulated in the UN Resolution 194. Um, 
And this campaign is a grassroots campaign started off by the Palestinian Civil Society. And as the name already says, the means of the campaign are boycotting and divesting um, and sanctioning Israel. And this nonviolent method of protest is inspired by apartheid South Africa and the international solidarity and boycotts that help dismantle the white apartheid system in South Africa. And yeah, and so those Jewish-Israeli students in Berlin are accused of anti-Semitism, despite being Jewish, for standing up for Palestinian rights. I mean, I don't even know what to comment on that, but the School for Unlearning Zionism, which is that group, um, they issued a statement addressing exactly that, titled, How Does Germany Like Its Jews? So I'm just going to read that because it covers all of the significant points. Last Thursday, the Weissensee Kunsthochschule Berlin retracted funding from our October program and has shut down the Kunsthalle am Hamburger Platz website, which hosted our project and where we plan an exhibition that should open next weekend. Speakers already signed contracts and some already gave lectures, which the university now refuses to pay for. The Weissensee Kunsthochschule Berlin's decision to defund our program and shut down the website was taken after it had received a letter from a German journalist who accused some of the speakers who invited to participate in our October program, all Jewish Israelis, of supporting the BDS movement. Accusing the product of anti-Semitism for inviting these speakers, he demanded that the university distance itself from the product. We seek this attack as a direct continuation of recent developments in Germany. In May 2019, the Bundestag passed a resolution that defined the BDS movement as anti-Semitic and anyone doubting Israel's right to be a Jewish majority state as anti-Semitic. Although this resolution is not a binding law that defines the parameters in which the conversation is being held or, can, or cannot be held. At this point, whoever is suspected of supporting BDS becomes outcast and defamed as anti-Semitic, even if they themselves are Jewish. It's a resolution which both harms Jews and Palestinians, but benefits the reputation of Nazis, because the Bundestag equated the murderous National Socialist Party with its slogan, Don't Buy From Jews, with a human rights movement demanding equality in Israel-Palestine. So how does Germany like its Jews? disciplined and obedient. Good Jews, so to say, who participate in Germany's self-indulgent guilt trip and supporting Zionism, encouraging Jews to leave Europe and move to Israel. Our project, School for Unlearning Zionism, threatens the desire of far-right Germans to create a Germany clean of Jews. Today, German society has shown itself, once again, as racist, anti-Semitic and discriminatory. Um, I can't really add anything onto that. That was so on point and it's just it's <laughs> I'm out of words honestly so I should stop there but no Germany is causing us a lot of stress this week so there's this professor for ethnology um, which is definitely not rooted in colonialism and uh, Eurocentrism it's Susanne Schröter who is a renowned racist and she's famous for her uh, racist interviews and works and she gave an interview in a renowned newspaper as well in Germany in which she spoke about Islam yet again and how a religious pluralist society 
cannot include Islam because Islam is rooted in anti-Semitism or, or I don't even know what Punch is trying to get across that. And anti-Semitism is rooted in Islam. As if she's not talking from the country that carried out and still benefits from the systematic murder of 6 million Jewish people. And she also addressed the Islam cat scarf, a very debatable item of clothing for white people um, who absolutely have the right to tell us what we can wear and what we cannot wear. And she said that this piece of clothing is discriminatory and is thus opposing it. So like a cross, she explicitly said, a cross necklace, for example, is not discriminatory. It's part of the faith. It's normal. It's an expression of faith. But Islam, no. The hijab, no. That you cannot wear that. And another thing that happened in the very same week was the Konrad Adenauer Foundation and they're discussing the term Palestine because it's apparently a problematic term now which we should rethink and it's heavily associated with anti-Semitism. In fact, it is an anti-Semitic term and so I don't know what the solution is just stop the existence of the Palestinian people, right? So Europe does very much have an issue with racism. In fact, Europe is constituted of issues with racism and that's how Europe accumulated its wealth um, by using justifications they found in racism to allow the conquest of the global south and the plundering of its of its um, economy and its resources and the murder of its people. And I know a lot of you are tuning in from Instagram, Twitter, and I've been having a very, very troubled relationship with this online activist space. First of all, I believe, I firmly believe in in offline organizing. I've been trying to address multiple things on my Instagram Imatifada lately and Instagram is continuously deleting my posts on the Black Panther Party for example and now recently in Palestine as well and these platforms are owned by billionaires and to go back to the title of Otto Lord's essay The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House we can maybe make use of those platforms but they're still platforms owned by capitalists by billionaires who are using that to their own benefits so they won't allow any revolutionary action to take place on platform that they own that they regulate and of course there's a lot of security concerns coming to that and also just the communication between people so there's first of all more safer alternatives for communication online um, across the world because a lot of the organizing happening is international um, but also it's completely different to have face-to-face discussions to organize face-to-face and to just not have any barrier between us of course you have to find certain alternatives now with social distancing um, it's definitely not easy during a pandemic but we still have a lot of different opportunities during that specific pandemic and a lot of people are just realizing a lot during what's happening and and questioning their place in society in this capitalist system and because just a lot of people's lives are threatened now not only because of the virus but also because of their dependence on their next paycheck for example on the money that will allow them to access healthcare etc so a lot of people are reflecting so it's just ideal for organizing so if you have no other alternatives than organize online and social media gives you the platform to spread certain information, to call to action stuff, 
Um, and if you want to connect with people, then I suggest looking for better encrypted um, messaging apps. And generally speaking, offline organizing is the way to go because you physically organize, you physically mobilize people. But while we do have those platforms, we have to use them. And to come back to those embarrassingly racist headlines, Palestinians in Austria and in Germany have been facing so much discrimination, not only on a legal basis with their different passports or non-existent passports because a lot of them are stateless refugees, but also socially. A lot of them are just too afraid to even say that they're Palestinian. I have family that arrived in Austria four or five decades ago and and they're just too afraid to say that they're Palestinian. It's it's very hard for them to find the right setting to do so and and that's the case with a lot of Palestinians and it's our generation that is, is trying to find some pride in their identity that they've been taught to be ashamed of and that is being erased by the occupation by racists here, partly anti-Semites, um, that rely on Zionism to also discriminate against Palestinians. And I'm just begging you to address that because some of us don't have a choice. Some of us are Palestinian or are of Palestinian origin and we are trying our best to embrace that identity. And a lot of people are being really kind and expressing their allyship privately. But if you have a platform, even if it's a small platform and you um, and you post all kinds of anti-racist content, um, especially when something specific is trending and trends are very important in such movements because that's how you mobilize people but if you're going the anti-racist direction but only addressing things that are already mainstream in your circles and you are relatively privileged then you have to do more the Palestinian issue specifically is being fought it's so taboo Israel has a whole ministry just to fight movements like the BDS movement and condemn it as racist. And this is causing the defamation of a whole people, of the whole Palestinian people. And that's not helping at all with the transgenerational trauma that is being passed on to our generation of Palestinian exiles. And the least you could do is at least mention Palestinians and their struggle. If there's anything happening, if there's any campaigns, talk about them. Ask your Palestinian friends. Look at what Palestinian activists are sharing. This is a very simple thing I'm asking of you. That's nothing compared to organizing, for example. But it's leaving a significant impact, especially in times like this, in a place like this. Um, and to those organizers affected by these defamation campaigns, um, be it Palestinian organizers, Jewish organizers, like those from the School of Unlearning um, Zionism or Jewish Voice for Peace, and anyone in any anti-colonial movement in Austria and Germany, Elsewhere, where there's defamation not only from the right wing, but also from the supposed left wing, the majority white left that is fighting anti-colonial struggles or pushing them into the background as if they were not an essential part of socialist movements. So I was very inspired by this lecture um, of Jouba bin Wahad, who's a former member of the Black Panther Party and a co-founder of the Black Liberation Army. And he was talking to us on exactly those issues um, and encouraged us a lot privately as well. And he kept repeating the idea of us having to fight and take action as if we've already won. And this is just, this was so empowering to hear from him. Because in the end, we are specifically fought so much by white supremacists because they're afraid of the power we have in mobilizing people that know what's right 
and we are going to win and achieve our goals and achieve justice. So please don't feel powerless and if anyone tries to make you feel powerless in your anti-colonial struggle and your struggle for justice and equality and in your struggle against racism and white supremacy, then it is precisely because you are powerful and you have to act like you've already won. I mean, yeah, that's kind of the end of my rant. Not purely a rant though, because there's a positive uh, essence in it. Um, but yeah. <laughs> So now I just want to answer some questions um, and I'm not going to answer a lot, so probably just two or three and next time I'm going to address more questions. Um, I hope I'm going to plan in more time. This is quite time consuming, stressful, um, this week generally is very stressful, especially or emotionally as well because of um, those topics have just been stressing me a lot and I'm trying really hard to find the positive side of of all of what's happening or at least the reactions to what's happening so one question i got which is related to one of the points i addressed in this episode on modesty and women in islam and how modest clothing in islam is anti-patriarchal um as i often state on my social media so first of all if you claim to be a feminist then you should be for the right of women to determine what they want to wear and that does not only include the possibility or should not only include the option to undress as you wish, but also to dress as you wish to. Dress modestly if you want to. And a key thing for white feminists is to just exclude the second option. So um, women should feel free to embrace their nudity, but not their modesty. And a lot of people just claim that the freedom to undress as a woman is basically that's what self-determination is and it makes you powerful. Um... And there was this amazing interview I saw with, I think it was Yasmin Mugahid, who was interviewed by Trevor Noah, um, and he asked her on exactly that, and she said that if women are seen as oppressed when they dress according to the Islamic dress code for women, um, there's also one for men, of course, um, then that tells you a lot about the power structures and about how, or about where the power of a woman stems from according to those white feminists or according to those Islamophobes or whatever. And so a woman's power stems from her sexuality. That's kind of the essence of that point. So if women choose to privatize their sexuality and are therefore seen as powerless or as oppressed, then those people are just advocating for women's power to be equated with their sexuality. Um, so it's not for women to be in control of their own sexuality and their own bodies, but it's to conform to a certain norm, a norm which is in itself very patriarchal. So in that sense, hijab is anti-patriarchal because you're not conforming to that specific norm. And that's just a big screw you to the patriarchy and to racist white feminists. And yeah, but I would just like to add on that, that this is only a fraction of why I and a lot of um, other women choose to wear the headscarf and choose to dress modestly and it's it's always asked of us to justify why we're wearing that which is again kind of a very patriarchal thing in itself and there's a lot of just aspects to why I wear it. It mainly revolves around just obedience to God and a lot of a lot of things come with that which is for example 
um, opposing a lot of values that have been imposed on us under capitalism. And if you listen to the last episode, then you know that capitalism is just outright haram. And, you know, a lot of the beauty standards are directly connected to capitalism. In fact, the mere existence of beauty standards is in itself a kind of very capitalist idea because, or at least brands capitalize on that and on the insecurities that stem from not conforming to any beauty ideals. Um, right. Another question I got, which is the last one I'm going to answer now and I'm only going to do it briefly, is related to the last episode. And the person asked if social democracy was the closest thing to an Islamic economy. And no, it is not, just to say that briefly. Again, I'm not a theologist, I'm also not an economic expert. But social democracy is very problematic in its history. Social democracy in itself does not negate colonialism and colonial exploitation. In fact, most social democracies and the social democratic politicians and parties themselves were actively calling for colonialism. So again, it's just kind of um, social democracy in the own country at the cost of the global south. So you can see the absence of just basic um, morals and values like justice which we which are acquired in Islam and also the fact that social democracy is reformist and it will never achieve justice in the long run so also not in the country itself it will never grant the working class kind of a power balance and it will not get rid of classes in the long run um, so it's neither morally nor economically speaking anything close to what Islamic would, uh, Islam would advocate for. Um, Alright, so thank you for tuning in. I um, hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you liked the episode, then subscribe and rate us. And if you want to keep up with the latest updates and want to contact us in any way, then follow us on Instagram at diaspora underscore disorientate or on Twitter at underscore disorientate. And yeah, salam, peace.